I know some people won't understand, but I thought I was doing the right thing. I believed in him like all the others. And he must have known that. He knew that, right? I mean, after all, he called me to be one of his disciples. He even trusted me with the money. I remember how it was at the beginning. I had such high hopes that God was about to do something great. And we did see great things. Crippled made to walk. Sight restored to the blind. Even dead people raised to life. And it wasn't just him. He had an effect on us. One time, he sent us out in pairs. And even the demons were subject to us. We came back to him and told him all about it. We were all so happy and so excited. We knew that he was the one. But as time went by, things began to sour. He began talking about suffering and death instead of the victory that we were waiting for. I was tempted to leave, as others did, but I stuck with him. After all, I had a responsible position in the organization. Some of the others, like John, thought that I misused the funds. But if you're going to administer a program of aid to the poor, you need a professional to manage it. (laughs) These simple fishermen couldn't understand the complexities of managing an organization's finances. After all, I managed the assets so well that I more than made up for any liberties I may have taken from time to time. But that's not the point. The point is, I stayed with him right to the very end. But it drove me crazy to see him not doing one thing to oppose those awful Romans. You know, I thought he ought to act boldly, call upon a legion of angels that could put God's enemies in their place. And, except for the one incident in the temple, he didn't do anything about the corruption in the religious hierarchy. He just hemmed and hawed and kept talking about giving his life as a ransom. For whom? For the many? For all those Gentiles? Those Romans? I have to do something. I just want to give him a nudge. You know, get him moving. I figure that when I show up with the temple guard, it will call his hand. And he will have to act like the king he is supposed to be. Oh, you want to know what this is? It's money. They gave me 30 pieces of silver. But I didn't do it for the money. When Jesus assumes his throne, I'll put it in the treasury or or give it back to the Pharisees. Well, here I stand at the crossroads. Once I make this decision, there will be no turning back. Not for him. Not for me. Good morning. 
My name is Gary Weber. I am privileged to serve as a pastor here at Southside Baptist Church, and we're so glad that you've joined us this morning uh, for worship, and especially this morning because we are beginning a brand new series that we are calling Crossroads. And if we were to take some time and I were to ask each of you to describe a time in your life where you came to a crossroad, we would all have a story to tell. Uh, A crossroad is that place in life where you, you come up to an intersection and you've got to make a choice. Sometimes you see the crossroad coming from a distance. Uh, Maybe for some of you that was a career change and you knew the career change was coming and so you began to make plans and adjustments and get the education you needed or the training you needed and you were coming up to the crossroads with an idea of which way you would go. For others, maybe it had something to do with college, which college you would attend. For, For some, maybe it had something to do with the person you would spend the rest of your life with. But we have crossroads that that we see coming on the horizon, and we make our way to them, and we make a decision. And ultimately, the decision we make will change the trajectory of our life forever. But sometimes crossroads come, and we didn't expect them. You come around a bend, and suddenly you're faced with a crossroad. Some of you have been at those crossroads Where suddenly you have faced life without your spouse for whatever reason. Maybe there was a doctor's report that you didn't anticipate or expect. Or there was a downturn in the economy and and, and you had a financial loss that you weren't anticipating. But you come to a crossroads and you find, okay, what what am I going to do? And you have to make a decision. No decision itself is in fact a decision. And so you're forced to make a decision. And you know that the choice you make in that moment will change things for the future. We are entering this series called Crossroads, and we're going to look at the lives of individuals that Jesus encountered on his way to the cross. And and the reality is that the cross that Jesus faced caused every person he encountered to face a crossroad in their life. What were they going to do with this thing that Jesus was confronting? How were they going to respond? How were they going to interact with Jesus, knowing what it was he was about to do, anticipating the suffering he was about to endure, what would they do? It forced every person Jesus encountered to this crossroad in their life. And when we read their story, when we understand who they are, we we come to understand the crossroads we face in our spiritual journey looks very much like their crossroads. That, That we come to face the claims of Christianity And we find ourselves having to make decisions based on the claims of the cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe today you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know much about the Christian faith or you don't know what you believe about God or or if you if you don't know what you believe about Jesus, maybe you've been out of church for a very long time and you remember maybe what somebody told you about the Christian story, about the cross, about the crucifixion and the resurrection but, but, but maybe you have never really decided yourself, what do I believe about this? How does this affect me? So our hope for the next few weeks as we explore these encounters that Jesus had with these individuals is that it'll cause you to maybe reflect on your own journey, your own spiritual journey, and, and say, where, where am I? And, and what decision will I make when I am confronted with the story of Jesus, of his tremendous love and his tremendous sacrifice? So each week we'll look at a different character from John chapter 18 and 19. As a matter of fact, if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open your Bible to John 18. We'll take a look at this first character that we encounter uh, from the gospel of John chapter 18, this encounter that he comes. But the crossroad that we face today is, is one that we all face, no matter what your religious background, no matter what your religious beliefs are. And it's basically this idea of what do you do with the idea of God? Do, do you believe there is a God outside of yourself? 
Or do you believe instead that, that there's only a God of your own creation, of your own design? And when we come to this passage today, we're specifically confronted with this idea, will you follow Jesus or a God of your own design? Will you follow Jesus or a God of your own design? This speaks to the very nature of the human soul. You see, as Christians, and really as many world religions would teach, we believe that humans were created by God in God's image. And we specifically believe that God created you with a hole inside of your soul. Uh, And that hole is only filled, it's only satisfied when you worship the God who created you. But you will inevitably worship something. And so if you don't worship the God who created you, you will instead turn and worship something that you create. A God of your own creation. A God of your own design. A God that you, in fact, created. When God spoke to his people through his servant Moses and he gave them the Ten Commandments he, he gave them this list of ten things and the very first commandment is probably the most significant of all the commandments actually all the other commandments flow out of the very first commandment what God said when he was giving the commandments to his people he said I am the Lord your God me I am the Lord your God. I am the one who created you. You were created in my image. I am the one who fills that hole that exists inside of your your soul. And he said, you shall have no other gods before me. And you shouldn't create any idols that you can worship. I am to be the sole recipient of all of your worship. And every other commandment flows out of that. Think about this for a second. Why would somebody steal? They would only steal if they have put a God, the God of wealth or the God of possessions, above the God of the universe. So if, if they have no other God before God, they wouldn't steal. Adultery. Why would somebody commit adultery unless they allow their lust to drive them to the God of personal satisfaction above the God of the universe? Every other command flows out of that very first command. I am the Lord your God. Have no other God beside me and we will either serve the God who created us or we will create an idol to serve and the whole Old Testament is full of this idea you've got these people who who are constantly falling into the these patterns of worshiping idols that they have made with their own hands and of course in 2017 we look at that and we think well we don't make idols to worship anymore we don't carve wooden images or 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 have porcelain dolls that we bow down to in our homes we don't have idols like that hold on i gotta i gotta check i got a text message i need to check you see our idols look different don't they we create idols today as well. And, and here's a good definition of an idol that may, that may help you sort of separate it out from this idea of these little wooden images that, that maybe some tribe that you read about in National Geographic carve. An idol is a good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. That definition is by Tim Keller. An idol is a good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. Think about that for just a second. It could be your career. You may have a good career. You may be a teacher. You may be a doctor. You may be an attorney. You may be somebody who works in a factory somewhere. And your career, your job itself can be a good thing until suddenly your career becomes the ultimate thing. 
Suddenly you find your marriage falling apart. Suddenly you find yourself distanced from your kids. Suddenly you find yourself making decisions you wouldn't otherwise make. You make, take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. There are all other kinds of examples. Education is a good thing. But if education becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Entertainment. You know, I'm all for entertainment. I love good entertainment. But the minute entertainment becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes an idol that we worship. Sex. Sex is a good thing. God created sex. But the minute you take sex and make sex the ultimate thing, it becomes an idol that you worship. Anything, any good thing that becomes the ultimate thing is an idol that we find ourselves worshiping. And one of the idols that we create in our culture, and our society, is the idol of wealth. You see, we have this idea that with wealth comes power. That all kinds of things are available to us if we can just acquire enough wealth. And so we find ourselves taking wealth and making wealth an idol that we worship. So this brings us to Judas. Judas was one who was bent towards the idea of wealth. Judas uh, is a caricature that we often create in our own minds. We, we hear the stories of Judas, and he, he is one of the most infamous characters in all of human history and all of literature. John, who is writing this gospel account, is, is writing the story as an old man looking back on, on everything that happened. And so John, as he's looking back, and he knows his readers know the story, they know who Judas is. Every time John mentions Judas' name, he adds a commentary that says he's the one that betrayed Jesus. But John didn't know that when he was walking with Judas down the street. None of the disciples knew that. None of them had any idea that Judas was going to do that. And sometimes in our mind, as we make this caricature of Judas, we separate ourselves out from him. And we think, I could never make the decisions Judas made. I would never betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I, I wouldn't do that. But none of the disciples who followed Jesus, including John, had any idea what was going on inside of Judas' heart. The decision that Judas was confronted with, the crossroads that Judas found himself at, was he going to follow Jesus, even if following Jesus meant following him to the cross, to Roman execution, or was he going to pursue a God of his own design? Was he going to try to manipulate God and form God into his own image, or was he going to surrender his idea of God and follow Jesus to the cross? And that's the same decision you and I are confronted with every day. And Judas was trusted. Judas was loved. Judas was respected. Jesus chose Judas to be the CFO of their organization. And he could have picked anybody. Think about some of the other disciples that Jesus passed over for the job of chief financial officer. There was Nathaniel. Jesus, talking about Nathaniel, said, this is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is a man of integrity. You would think, if you've got a man of that high caliber of integrity, he ought to manage your money. But Jesus didn't choose Nathaniel. He could have chosen John. John was a disciple that Jesus loved. If Jesus loved him, surely he would have entrusted him with the money. John wouldn't have ever done anything with the money that would have been questionable. But he didn't choose John. He could have chosen Matthew. Matthew, after all, had experience. He was a Roman tax collector. It would have made a lot of sense to ask Matthew to be the keeper of the money, but he didn't choose Matthew. Was this a bad choice? Did, did Jesus make a mistake? I don't think so. John tells us in John chapter 6, verse 70, that Jesus knew that Judas was a devil. In John chapter 2, John tells us that Jesus knew the heart of every person. So Jesus knew 
Judas' heart. He knew the decisions that Judas was going to make, and he still chose him to be the keeper of the money. This was a deliberate choice. And I think when we get to the end of John's gospel, we see Judas at the crossroad, a crossroad that Jesus knew all along Judas would come to, where Judas was going to have to decide who he was going to follow. Was he going to follow a God that he had formed in his own image? Was he going to follow the idol of wealth? Or was he going to surrender that and follow after Jesus? In John chapter 13, uh, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. And and they're having the last supper. And they're all gathered around. And Jesus mentions to the disciples that one of them are going to betray him. And if you go back and you read John chapter 13, it's obvious that none of the disciples know who it is. That none of them guess that it's going to be Judas. They have no clue. Some of them even question themselves. Lord, is it me? Am I the one? But nobody thinks to question Judas because he is so trusted. And at one point in the meal, Jesus leans over to Judas and says, Judas, what you do, do quickly. And even after Jesus said that, none of the disciples understood. Judas was probably sent on errands all the time as the keeper of the money. Nobody thought it was going to be Judas. So Judas leaves the upper room and the rest of the disciples gather around and from chapter 14 all the way through chapter 17, Jesus is talking to them. He's pouring out his heart to them. And finally we come to chapter 18 and he says, the hour has come. At the end of chapter 17, he says, the hour has come. And the curtain begins to rise on this incredible, incredible drama that's about to unfold. As Jesus, one by one, encounters all of these people, beginning with Judas, at the crossroads where they have to make a decision, what are they going to do with the cross of Jesus Christ? John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, these words are all the things that he has spoken from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17. When he's spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now it's interesting, John is an incredibly artistic writer. And John is setting up his readers because he knows that those among them who, who are Jewish, who know the Torah, know the Old Testament, know something. That, that when man first betrayed God, it happened in a garden. And here we are, full circle, right back in a garden. And there is about to be another betrayal. That Jesus himself is about to be betrayed. And so this whole thing is taking place in a garden. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Don't pass by that. That's important. You see, Jesus knew what Judas was about to do. And so when Jesus left the upper room, he could have gone anywhere. He could have gone somewhere where Judas wouldn't have been able to find him. But instead, he intentionally went to the very place that he knew Judas would come looking for him. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas had been in private negotiations with the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees were very interested in, in arresting Jesus. They had been trying to do it for a long time. The problem that they had was every time Jesus was out in public, he was surrounded by all these people. I mean, there were throngs of people all around him, and they were hanging on his every word. And he had healed people, or he had healed people's children, or he had healed their moms or their dads. And all these people just loved Jesus. And so the the Pharisees were afraid that if we arrest him in public, there could be a riot. That could cause problems with the Romans. We, We need to arrest him quietly. We need to arrest him privately. 
And so they'd been negotiating with Judas to say, hey, Judas, if you would just help us to be able to identify Jesus in a private place where we can arrest him privately. And so Judas had agreed to hand Jesus over to them in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. And today, 30 pieces of silver, people have speculated it amounts to anywhere from about 300 to about $600, this money that Judas would have been offered to betray Jesus. And so at this moment, while the deed still had not been done, Judas still had to identify Jesus to the soldiers. The soldiers would not have known who Jesus was. They might not have been able to recognize him among the crowd of the other disciples. So Judas, while he's leading the soldiers to Jesus, still has an important role to play. He has to specifically show them which one is Jesus. Now Luke adds an important detail here. So in Luke chapter 22, verse 47 and 48, we read this. While he was still speaking, Jesus, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, in our very Western macho mentality, men don't typically kiss each other. But if you go to other parts of the world, if you go to Europe or you go to the Middle East, uh, it's a tradition that goes back to Jesus' time and before, and it still persists today that uh, the, the common greeting isn't a handshake, it's a kiss. And you come up and you kiss someone on the cheek, or you may kiss them on both cheeks, or you may kiss them on each cheek four or five times, as whatever the custom of the specific culture uh, would dictate. And it's just a common greeting of affection. Uh, primarily between men, a man to a man, or women to women. Uh, And so this would have been a normal way that Jesus and his disciples would have greeted one another. And Judas comes up and he, he kisses him. And Jesus asks the question, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And think about this for just a second. Judas could have identified Jesus in any way he chose. He could have just turned to the guards and said, hey, that's him right there. That's the guy. That's the one you're looking for. Judas could have just called out Jesus' name. And Jesus could have stood up. And, and, and the soldiers would have automatically known. But Judas decided instead that he was going to go up to Jesus and he was going to kiss him. And this kiss tells me, it's speculation on my part, but it just tells me that Judas was still conflicted about the decision he was going to make. That, that Judas in some ways was still trying to hedge his bets that, that maybe in one hand he, he wanted Jesus to know that he still had affection for him. He still cared about him. He was still his follower. But on the other hand, he just wanted Jesus to change the plan. That this plan of going to the cross was not the right plan. So maybe Judas' motivation wasn't just to betray Jesus. But maybe his motivation was just to change Jesus. Come on. Don't you do that? Don't I do that all the time? I mean, don't, don't, aren't we confronted with God's plan and God's will and, and we find ourselves kind of bowing up inside and thinking, oh, but God, that's, that's really not what you want to do. Come on, really what you want to do is you want to do this. And we begin to try to create God, the God who created us in his image. We try to create him in our image. God, we don't really like this. The fact that we've lost this job. God, I really don't like the fact that this is the direction my child's life is going in. God, I really don't like the fact that this is the doctor's report. God, I really don't like the fact that this is the way that the world is going. That, and we just think if we could just manipulate God a little bit. See, I think that's what Judas was doing. I think he was just trying to recreate God ever so slightly in his own image. 
Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Don't skip that. Jesus was not surprised by any of this. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus, knowing what was about to happen, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Jesus didn't try to hide. He didn't try to escape his fate. He walked right into the garden where he knew Judas would find him. And he stood right up and said, I'm the person you're looking for. But don't miss what he said. I am he. If you go back and you read that in the Greek, the little phrase that Jesus uses there is, I am, I am. I am. (laughs) It's an incredible, credible statement. Because back in the Old Testament, when God was speaking to Moses and calling Moses on his mission. Moses said, but God, when somebody asked me your name, what would I tell them? And God said to Moses, just tell them, I am. And now here we are in the garden. And Jesus says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' response is, I am. I am. Verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. You see, ultimately, Judas had to make a decision. He couldn't waver between two opinions. Judas had to decide where he was going to stand. Was he going to stand with Jesus, the great I am, the one who claimed to be God himself, God incarnate, or was he going to stand with Jesus' accusers? And John answers the question for us in verse 5. Judas was standing with them. You see, Judas ultimately chose to serve the idol of wealth over God. He chose to serve the idol of his own interests, his own desires, his own hunger for power. He he chose to serve the idol of his own creation over following Jesus to the cross. You think, well, how do you know it was about the money? Well, one indication is back in John chapter 12. See, in John chapter 12, if you remember the story... Jesus is in the house of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And Mary, the, the, the sister, is so overwhelmed with gratitude that she goes and she gets this jar of oil that's probably her dowry. And it's worth about three years' wages. And she brings the jar out and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And Judas speaks up, of all the disciples, Judas speaks up and says, Why did you waste that? That could, that, that could have been used to, to buy Money for the poor, and John includes an an important commentary there. He says, but Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas often pilfered money from the treasury, used it for his own personal gain. See, Judas had an idol inside of his heart, the idol of wealth. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for gain, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some people think that Paul was actually writing that about Judas. That that the love of money, the root of that love. It didn't say, notice it doesn't say that money is the root of evil. A lot of times you'll hear this verse misquoted, that money is the root of evil. Uh -uh. It says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is, is amoral. Money itself can be used for great good. But remember the definition of an idol. When you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing, that's the love of money. And Paul says, 
for, for the love of money. Some people have walked away from the faith and they have pierced themselves. Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and we'd expect the next word to be Satan. Like that's the choice. That's the cosmic choice. Like if you just choose between God and Satan. The problem with that choice is we would all choose God. I mean everybody. No matter what you think about God or Jesus. we'd like. I mean I know enough to say I'd choose God over Satan. But if you make the decision between God and money it gets a little more tricky doesn't it? It gets a little harder. Because money represents so many of our idols. Money represents our power, our influence, our authority. Money represents everything that I can create as a God myself. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus said. Let me ask you a question. Who's your master? Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. Or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. Who is your master? Let me ask you this, what's your price? How much is your soul worth? There was a survey recently published in the New York Daily News. And listen to these, listen to these stats. For $1 billion, okay, that's a lot of money. $1 billion with a B dollars. For $1 billion, 6% of people would commit murder. 6%. Let me just make that personal for you. So, so today, about 300 of us, 18 of you for a billion dollars would kill somebody else in the room. How's that make you feel about coming to church on Sunday? For a billion dollars, 10% would commit treason. For a mere hundred million dollars, 15% would fake their own death. For one million dollars, 10% would punch a stranger in the face. There are some people, some of you might punch for free. Okay, you, you're looking for a better deal. How about this? For $100,000, 10% would perform a sex act with a stranger. For $100,000, 10% would enter into a sham marriage. For $10,000, $10,000, 20%, 20% would flash a stranger. And I don't mean with a flashlight. For $1,000... 15% of people would shoplift. And for $600, Jesus, Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss. And many of us would do it for far less. You think, wait a minute. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I'd never make the decision Judas made. But don't we make it every day? Come on, let me, let me, let me ask you. Let me just ask you. It's tax season. It's tax season. Would you, betray, would you betray Jesus for a few extra deductions on your tax return? Would you sell Jesus out by maybe taking a few extra perks every now and then from your employer? Would you betray Jesus by cheating a customer who might not know better? Students, would you betray Jesus by cheating on a test? How about lying to a parent or a spouse to cover up an indiscretion? You see, every time we make those choices, we are saying that we place a God of our own design over the God who designed us. 
And we make those decisions every day. Don't we? Come on, we make them every day. I make those decisions every day. I am not so different from Judas, and neither are you. Every decision we make to serve a God of our own design or to design God after our own will is a betrayal of Jesus on the same order of Judas. That's why he died. And he knew it. And he went into it willingly. That he willingly died for Judas, knowing Judas was going to betray him, just like he willingly died for you and for me, knowing all the ways that we would betray him. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if you want to know where your heart is, all you have to do is look back at what you treasure, what you value, what moral, ethical shortcuts you're willing to take. But before you make those decisions, it's important for you to know something. It's important for you to know the rest of the story, everything else that happened to Judas. Because like all false gods, every idol that you create becomes a tyrant who lords over you. Every idol you create is deceptive. Listen to what Habakkuk says, Habakkuk 2.5. Wealth is deceitful. Greedy people are proud and restless. Like death itself, they are never satisfied. You felt that way before. You fill in the blank. Take wealth out and put in anything you want. Power, fame, notoriety, prestige, respect, sex. Whatever it is, it's all deceitful. And you never have enough to fully satisfy that thing that's inside of you, that hole that's inside of you. And you think if you could just get more and more and more and more and more, finally something in you, that hole inside of you would be filled. But it's never filled because there's only one thing that can fill it, and that's the God who created you. Wealth is deceitful. And it's never satisfied. Listen to what happened to Judas. Matthew gives us the rest of the story. Matthew chapter 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He was trying to unwind what he'd done. Have you ever had to try to do that? Sure you have. Yeah. And sometimes you just can't unwind it, can you? I mean, you can't get a second chance at your first marriage. You can't get a second chance with your parents, with your kids. You can't get a second chance at that job that you had. There are times where you know the decisions that you have made have led to certain consequences. And as much as you want to try to get the genie back in the bottle, you just can't do it. Judas tried to do it. He took the silver back to the Pharisees and the elders. And listen to what he said. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Verse 4. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. That's such an interesting response. Think about this. They did not argue with Judas. Judas said, I have sinned. They didn't disagree with that. Judas said, I have betrayed an innocent man. They didn't disagree with that either. They knew what Judas was doing all along. Verse 5, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went out away and he hanged himself. Verse 6 and 7, the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this money in the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. 
Isn't that what society does to us? Students, listen. All your friends, culture itself, will coax you. It will say, come on, everybody's doing it. You deserve this. This is, nobody will know. Nobody has to know anything. What, what, it's not even hurting anybody. And, and you will follow along and you will take the 30 pieces of silver. And then the very culture and the very people who enticed you will stand back and watch you fall and fail and will mock you as it's happening. Just think, just think about a student that you know. Think about a student you know who, who decided, you know what, everybody's having sex. It doesn't hurt anybody if we love each other. Until somebody gets pregnant or they get an STD, then what happens? Where are all those friends who said it's okay then? They back away, don't they? Don't think this is just about students. It's about all of us. Because this is the very nature of what sin does. It's deceitful. And it's never satisfied. And just like the Pharisees and Judas, it will entice you. It will entice you with the God that looks like the God you want to worship. And then the minute that God falls short and the minute you fail, it will pull back away from you and mock you. Let me ask you a couple questions. As you consider the crossroad of a God who says, follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Or a God that you can create in your own likeness, in your own image. Let me ask you this. Objective question. Nobody's off the hook. This is an all-skate, okay? Everybody's, everybody's on the hook for this. You're a Christian, you're a non-Christian, doesn't matter what you believe, everybody's on, everybody's on for this. Would a stranger who has nothing more than your bank statement and your calendar, what God would they say you worship? If, if all they had was a look at how you spent your money, how you spent your time, what God would they say you worship? Let me ask you this, based on your ethical and moral choices, I'm not even trying to tell you what those ought to be, okay? I'm just saying in your own heart, you who know your own heart, you who know your own decisions, based on your own ethical and moral choices, whatever you think is right or wrong, what or who are you worshiping? See, Judas stood at a crossroads. He had to make a decision. Am I going to follow Jesus Or am I going to try to create a God in my own image that I'm going to worship? And I believe we all stand at that same crossroads. Maybe multiple times in the course of our life. Maybe even multiple times in the course of our week. And it's not always a big dramatic decision about 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Sometimes it's about the small things. The small things. The little decisions that you make. Who will you follow? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray. One of the things that I've really been hoping that um, would happen as a course of our series, uh, of this Crossroads series, is that we would, we would look on these characters that Jesus encountered on his way to the cross and we would not see them as these larger-than-life characters from the Bible, but we would see ourselves in them. And maybe there's no more difficult character to see ourselves in than Judas because the caricature of him is so strong in our culture. But today, I just, I just wonder, as you look at Judas, in what ways is your heart like his? Because I'm convinced that there, 
there is something about every human heart that is reflected in Judas. The Bible says we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that we've all made decisions where we have opted for an idol of our own creation over the God who created us. And this, listen, this, this doesn't have to do with whether you're a Christian or not. There are Christians here, and, and we would tell you we, we are still confronted with this crossroad on a daily basis almost. My prayer for you, my prayer for our church is that as we, as we come to this crossroad, we will every time, every time, we will take up the cross and we will follow Jesus, even if it means our own loss, our own suffering, even if it means it costs us something. Father, we come to you today and we're just so grateful for your love and your compassion and your mercy. Lord, as I I read this account and read the story of Judas, it, it breaks my heart. The tragedy of this story just breaks my heart. I believe, Lord, that uh, even in spite of his choices, the choices that you knew he would make, that, that Father, you love Judas the same way you love the world, so much so that you would give your one and only son. Father, help us. Help us as we come to the crossroads this week, as we face an ethical and a moral decision. Lord, help us not to hesitate to follow the way of the cross, to be willing to lay down the idols of our own creation and to follow after Jesus. And Father, we pray that as we make those decisions, the world might see in us your love and your compassion and your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name.